Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast, where Janelle and I have been doing this thing since 2016, brewing theology in pubs across the country, different chapters, lots of curriculum, lots of topics, interfaith, intergenerational, and intercultural. Janelle and I are together with Dr. Brian Gamble. Brian studied microbiology at the University of Missouri before pursuing theology at Duke University. He currently works at a postdoctoral research fellow at Baylor and serves as a parishioner at St. Albans Episcopal Church in Waco, Texas. He has three children who remind him that his guitar skills are decidedly suboptimal, and in his free time, he pretends to be a runner. I would assume at our age, Brian, that's long distance, but if you're a sprinter, more power to you. It's good to have Brian here on the show today, and if you like this episode already, I know you're going to do this, go to iTunes, rate it, review it, share it with your friends. Obviously, we're not just on iTunes, we're on Spotify, Podbean, Pocket Cast, all those kinds of fun things, Google Play, iHeartRadio. I don't know where we're not located. So share it. Your friends are on one of those apps. Brian, good to have you. We're going to be talking today about the divine dance, God's rhythm in a world of laws. How does God act in the world? Kind of getting back to 20th century theologian Rudolf Bultmann. Okay. So Brian, before we get into Bultmann and, and some of this here, what, what was your spiritual background, pedigree, religious upbringing that then led you into a life of theology. Just real quick within, you got about a minute. <laughs> okay, sure. I was raised Baptist and I went to college and there I was part of an evangelical church where I went on staff for some time. I was dissatisfied eventually with many of the answers that I was given. At the same time, I discovered the theological tradition after college, I discovered that there were thinkers and ideas and movements that occurred between the New Testament and the 40 years before, you know, any of these movements started. And I very much felt that I had rediscovered many of these things for myself. I began going to an Episcopal church when I was in Durham, North Carolina, and that was life-changing for me to see that you could integrate these ideas, these traditions from the church, as well as a vibrant, robust intellectual life into what is, I considered a pretty vibrant, robust spirituality as well. And so that's where I find myself today. So, you know, perhaps a handful of our listeners have heard of Rudolf Bultmann, uh, the king of demythologizing. So could you just give us a brief overview of Bultmann and then his significance as a 20th century theologian? And then after that, kind of define that term demythologize for those who don't know that what that word is. Sure, absolutely. Rudolf Bultmann is perhaps the most famous biblical interpreter of the 20th century. And many people, I think, would argue that he is the greatest biblical interpreter of the 20th century. A lot of people do not agree with him. A lot of people have a lot that they disagree or that they would find fault with him on, but everyone has to deal with him because of his influence in the 20th century. Rudolf Bultmann was an ally of Karl Barth early in Karl Barth's career when he began to attack liberal German theology. And so they are both part of this dialectical theology movement early on, but they parted ways over a lot of disagreements they had about what that project should look like. One of the things that they parted ways on was what eventually came to be called Boltmann's Program of Demythologizing. And Boltmann's Program of Demythologizing is often misunderstood. It is something that 
is somewhat of a scandal for a lot of Christians because when they hear the words demythologizing, what many of them assume that what he means is the Bible is full of myths, meaning that it's untrue, and that what Boltman's trying to do is simply salvage some kind of meaning from the Bible for modern day people. What Boltman means by demythologizing is that the Bible's world is mythological in nature, meaning, and he means by that two things. One is that it is another culture's set of ideas about how the world works. And that means that it's alien to us. And then also what he means by that is that there is an objectifying aspect to that way of viewing the world, a way of viewing God's action in the world. And so what Boltman wants to do is to find a way to speak about God that is not in an alien culture, not a culture of the past, and one that does not objectify God. So we can get more into that idea about demythologizing, but that is the idea in a nutshell. In mythological thinking, divine action is often portrayed as breaking of the cause and effect chains. How does Boltman critique this view and what implications does it have for our understanding of God's actions in the traditional sense? A very common way of imagining God's action in the world is to imagine that God is an agent like any other agent in the world. And so if we imagine a chain of cause and effect, which is how we understand the world, essentially, what we come to understand is that there's some agent that causes something. So agent A does something on item B, which causes event C to occur. And it is easy to assume that God is like all the other agents that we know. So that if God is going to act in a certain way, that God must be like agent A that acts on something B to cause C. The problem with that is that when we look around at the world, we don't see generally God acting in that kind of way. And so often what happens is that there's an assumption that God's action is miraculous in nature, that when God does act, God breaks the normal chain of cause and effect. God interrupts what would normally happen. And instead of B leading to C, God causes B to lead to D or some other outcome. Uh, and this is what we would term often a miracle. And what Boltman wants to argue is that there's a way of speaking intelligently about God's action in the world that does not require God to be in the world or to be an agent in the world. To do that, Boltman says, is to objectify God. God then becomes part of the world. God becomes a part of the web of interactions in the world rather than transcendent from it. Yeah, so he then he, cr he criticizes this objectification of God. Humanizing God is what we've always done. We grew up, you know, Brian, I'm sure you grew up with that as well. I know I did, Janelle, you did. So kind of elaborate a bit on how speaking of God as though God were a human object, it affects our understanding of divine action. And then we'll kind of get to some of his, <laughs> well, I want to say gymnastics. We'll get to where he's headed later with that. <laughs> sure. Well, this idea that God is a part of the world or that God this idea that where we speak in an objectifying way about God is that we are speaking about God as though we're speaking about a human, or we are speaking humanly about God. To speak of God as though God were a human or an object with whom we could relate, observe, and investigate. But because God is God and not a thing in the world, God's acting does not look like the actions of people. And so when God acts, it's not going to look like the way that humans or any other agent that we see in the world act. We will not necessarily even know 
that God is acting when God acts. And that is the, that is really what Boltman wants to get at is that God's action is a different order of action. It's not simply that we know what human actions like, and therefore God's action must be a million times that. That is to use the language of Karl Barth to speak man in a loud voice or to speak human in a loud voice. And that's not what God is. God is not just a human amped up by a million times. So God's power is not human power multiplied by a million. God's wisdom is not human wisdom multiplied by a million. And God's mm -hmm. action is not like human action, but then taken to the nth degree. It is qualitatively different. Yeah. So I'm curious, in his understanding of just history, anthropology, cultural norms, ancient Near East, he's okay with the fact that people have thought about God in these other ways. Right. At one point, like that, that's how actually how the writers thought about God in these human ways. But now he's like, obviously, we can't do that anymore. But he is aware that people thought about God like that for thousands of years. Yeah. So again, Boltmann's critique of mythological thinking is for two reasons. And one is that the way that cultures in the past saw God or talked about God is indigenous to that culture. And so to keep using that kind of language is to adopt a foreign or alien way of speaking about God, because it's not our cultural language. Boltman does claim that there is a naive objectifying as well. And so he would say that when other cultures spoke about God in this objectifying way, it is both necessary and wrong at the same time, that there is not another way of doing it. He finds in the Bible itself that the Bible largely speaks about God mythologically, but there are within the Bible places where it begins to demythologize that very kind of speech itself, that we see that happening within the New Testament itself. An example of that? Sure, absolutely. He points to both Paul and the Gospel of John as examples where we see this happening. So to use the Gospel of John, where he sees this most evident, he would say that there is this language above and below. So there's a lot of language in John that is that is mythological. So Jesus says, I am from above, you are from below. Or Jesus talks about the imagery of light and darkness. Or Jesus talks about eschatology, about what's going to happen in the future. But for Boltmann, it is clear that in these passages, what the author of John is doing is knowingly beginning to demythologize this, because Jesus is not really from above in a spatial sense. Jesus is not beyond the firmament. And Boltman would claim that for the Gospel of John, the writer does not see eschatology the same way, that eschatology is now, it's happening right now. But you're using the language of eschatology, you're using the language of the end of the world to talk about the significance of what's happening right now. So he sees those examples as examples where language of mythology, spatial language, temporal language, is being changed, it's being adapted and demythologized right there in the Bible for us. So that we're talking about something that's going to happen seemingly in the future, this eschatological language, but that is being applied to something existential that's happening right now. But mm. we're using the language of eschatology to describe the significance existentially of that for us in this moment. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I've actually heard from people that what he writes with, with John, his commentary on John, some of the best stuff that preachers can use. But that's, I don't know if you've ever used that before. I haven't. I've just heard this from other people. So I would say his commentary on the Gospel of John is fantastic. It is a really great investigation of 
many of the passages in John, and it is existentially loaded because he thinks that's what the gospel is about. The only difficulty, I think, with using that commentary is that often Boltmann assumes that certain passages either are out of order, and so he reorders it in his commentary, or he assumes that they were added by a, uh, a later redactor. And so Boltmann's probably, I, I think, a fair criticism of Boltmann is that he wants things to line up too neatly. He wants everything to have a bow on it. And most students of New Testament, most scholars of John now, would disagree with Boltmann on this. They would say, well, we have to make meaning of the text as we have it. We can't simply assume that because these ideas seem intention, that someone came along and just added a verse later. So that's probably a drawback from that commentary. But as far as the, the engagement with the ideas, it's second to none. I do quite a bit of work with people doing open and relational theology, and I'm wondering, Boltman might not be happy with that because we often talk about God in those circles as being, if we were in relationship with him, we were in relationship with a human, would we tolerate some of these behaviors? Would we think that this is a loving God? I don't know if you're familiar with open and relational at all, but would he be okay with that? Or would he find some critique in that? So I think I'm familiar with open theism. Is this what you're referring to? It's very similar. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know that I'm familiar with open and relational, that specific tag. I am familiar with the idea of open theism, which is, in my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the idea that God does not know the future. um, Right. God is going along this journey in time with us, but the God can largely predict what's going to happen because God has more information than anybody else, and God has lots of power at God's disposal. Yes, Boltman would find lots to critique about that. Okay, uh, I think that what Boltman would say is that this is an attempt to make God more human, more relatable. Yeah. So this is a way of imagining God as though God were essentially superhuman, so that we go through time we experience time, so does God, but God does it in a superhuman way. God can not see the future, but God knows, you know, all the electrons that are moving around, whatever, and can make a pretty accurate predictions based on that. God maybe can't just snap God's fingers, but can, can do most things that God wants to do. And for Boltman, I think what he would say to that kind of thing is that is a way of imagining God as though God were human, but super powerful. Yeah. And, and that is not for Boltmann transcendence. That is, that is speaking human in a loud voice. And so the difficulty with that is that what it accomplishes, I think, those kinds of ideas like open theism is what it accomplishes is you solve some problems in scripture or you solve some problems theologically about the way that God is. But what you sacrifice, I think Boltmann would say, is the very idea of God being this transcendent other that can claim the totality of us. So in many ways, this is the thing that's so fascinating to me, is that Boltmann is in many ways a traditional Lutheran theologian. He believes in, for the most part, a pretty conventional, traditional Christianity. Now that looks radically different in some ways with the the kind of scholarship he does, but at the end of the day, he's going to say, that you hear God's voice in the pulpit at church from a minister or from a priest, that you you encounter God by hearing the word of God, that God speaks through the Bible, that Jesus is God in person. He's going to have a lot of 
traditional sounding things and people who come to Boltmann who are hoping for a very radically different view of Christianity, I think are often disappointed. And just to push this point further, there is there were a lot of critics of Boltmann on, the, on his right, a lot of more conservative people who thought that Boltmann essentially was a heretic. He also had critics on the left of him. There was, for example, philosopher Carl Jaspers, who argued that Boltmann demythologized the New Testament, but he should go ahead and decharigmatize it as well. And what he meant by that is that, you, that Boltman still, in his estimation, was wrapped up with this idea about the message of Christianity and the message of the cross. And let's just go and get rid of all that as well. And one refused to. He said that's the whole point of demythologizing is to recover this idea of charisma. Interesting. Yeah, he definitely is married to a confessional way of doing Christianity, for sure. Uh, which I wouldn't say that's very, is that very Lutheran today? Depends on what kind of Lutheran you are. Uh, well, I won't speak for the Lutherans since I'm yeah. not Lutheran, but I yeah. do think that people are often surprised by that when they come to Boltmann, um, that he can be so conventional in, in those kinds of ways that, that often what they hope for is, is a very, because he seems to challenge some of these basic ideas that he would basically challenge everything. Uh, but that's not his purpose. His purpose is not to be a wrecking ball. His purpose is to recover the original voice or the original message about the kerygma. So this language of kerygma is the Greek word for preaching or proclamation. What is it that the first Christians were saying? And we can recover that in Boltmann's estimation by demythologizing the Bible so that we hear it in the same way that the original hearers would hear it. We hear it as a summons or a call to our existence and not simply as here's a list of 37 things you need to to believe, and can you please check all these off? It is first and foremost a call that addresses us in this present moment. And that's how the first Christians would have heard it and their audience. And he wants to recover that so that we can hear that as well. So when he specifically talks about Christ crucified and resurrected, and that, which is probably very loaded, and he's got many books on this, and you could probably talk for hours on that. That's a confessional piece. It's creedal. It's it's what's you know Christians for years have been preaching that in the early church as well. How does he get around? It's an event that happened, but I'm curious about his thoughts on the resurrection. This is where often discussions about Boltmann Boltmann end up. So I'm going to try to channel him as best as I can. I think that there is room for criticism of him here, but I'm going to try to be as sympathetic as possible before we engage in any kind of project that would tend to try to discredit him. So this is what he would say, I think, is that the crucifixion is certainly a historical event. The fact that Jesus was executed by the Romans is well established. Um, There's really no good reason for the early Christians to make up the story. It's highly scandalizing and embarrassing. Um, If there is a way to avoid it or get rid of it, we would. In fact, you tend to see this in in a lot of religious streams. So you see, for example, like in a lot of Gnostic interpretations, you have Jesus not crucified at all. He takes the place, he switches places with Simon. You see this in some stories about Islam that talk about Jesus was not actually crucified either. There's a lot of attempts to rescue Jesus from crucifixion because that's highly scandalizing. So that's an event that actually happened for Bolvan. But the idea that a body would, would be reanimated is for him a miracle, and miracles are ruled out because these kinds of things don't happen. And so when he talks about resurrection, he also talks about it as an event. He talks about it as an event that happened, but it's an, it's an eschatological event. And so he distinguishes 
between Geschichte and history. These are two German words. And German history often refers to kind of, the way, at least the way he talks about it, kind of bald statements or facts, things that happen. And Geschichte would be more of the meaning of what happened, the significance of what has happened. And so for Boltmann, God's action is always Geschichte. It's always eschatological. And so when God acts, God's action is not, is not simply an act in history that no one else can explain. It's not an act that we would see and go like, huh, well, nothing else explains why this thing is happening. It's the equivalent of a UFO that we can't figure out. So it must be God. That is not the way that God acts. The way that God acts for Boltmann is that God's action is always eschatological. It's always in the significance of what is happening. And so this gets back to the, the very idea itself about divine action for Boltmann. So I'm going to review that real quick before I talk about resurrection, because I think it's important. There are three different ways of imagining God acting. One is, according to Boltmann, one is this idea of direct identity. So God acts by performing miracles, and we can observe it because it is unusual, and it breaks the normal course of events. Or we might say that there's a kind of non-identity, which means that God might act, but we can never know it or observe it. If God acts or exists at all, it's really just a mystery. But for Boltmann, there's a third way, and that is what he calls paradoxical identity. And that means that God's action is hidden in the world, and it happens within the chain of cause and effect of worldly events and not between them. So God's acting in the world is indistinguishable from what he would call a secular event. So a thing that happens in the world would just be a thing that happens. And any neutral observer would see it and they'd think, oh, well, of course, that's why that happened, because X, Y, and Z. And yet, at the same time, the believer, through the eyes of faith, could also say that is God acting in the world. By faith, sometimes believers can see God's action, but only as it comes to us in, with, and through normal and everyday events. So then to apply this kind of grid to resurrection, what Boltmann says is that resurrection, he says, is the rise of faith in the hearts of believers. It is their way of seeing the crucifixion, but now in a new light. It is their way of seeing the significance of what has happened. And perhaps they had these experiences where they saw the risen Jesus. Perhaps they had experiences of that. But for Boltmann, the significance of it is not in those events. It is in how they now come to see the world. They have come to see that God has acted decisively to reverse or to vindicate the crucified Jesus. And so therefore, God is acting in this event. God is acting in crucifixion. And that way of talking about crucifixion for Boltmann is resurrection. So this, this often, I think, is highly unsatisfying for lots of people. And I'm sure there are better ways of explaining this. But this is, I think, the, the best way I can try to explain the way that Boltmann understands resurrection. So he wants to say that resurrection is both an event. It's an event that, that happened to the first believers, but it's something that happens to all of us as well. Thanks so much for listening to the Brew Theology Podcast and part one of our interview with Dr. Brian Gamble. We'll be back next week for part two as we continue our discussion around Boltmann and the resurrection. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and share us on your favorite podcast app. Please let people know that you enjoy listening to the podcast. If you want to know more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org. You can find us at Brew Theology on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at Brew underscore Theology on X. 
We hope you enjoy the show. Cheers. 